All right, if you've listened this far, you know the deal. The book that came out of this podcast is called How the Internet Happened, From Netscape to the iPhone by me, available wherever fine books are sold. Also, the podcast I do these days is called The Tech Meme Ride Home. Search any podcast app for Ride Home, and you should find The Tech Meme Ride Home, which is all the day's tech news every weekday in just 15 minutes. If you like this show, you'll love that one. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. Maggie Mahar is an award-winning journalist who has written for Money Magazine, Institutional Investor, The New York Times, Bloomberg, and in the 90s, covered the markets for Barron's Magazine. She's also the author of an excellent book called Bull, A History of the Boom and Bust, 1982-2004. to Uh, A book that has been hugely helpful for me as I begin to frame out the episodes that will bring us into the dot-com bubble era. I reached out to Maggie to see if she would help me kick around some of the ideas that her book raised in order to wrap my mind around the causes and context of the dot-com bubble. Of course, I recorded our conversation so that we can all start thinking about this era together. Some of the ideas that we kick around are a little bit outside the tech sphere that we usually cover. But I really think that it's important that we get the dot-com bubble right, as well as we can. The bubble is this mythical thing, I think, that hangs over the tech industry, like the Depression was for my grandparents, or like the era of high inflation in the 1970s was for seemingly every economist in the world. It's this weird bogeyman that everyone remembers with a shudder and fears the inevitable return of. You know, are we in a new bubble? Is this a bubble? Again, like some sort of monster under the bed. So this episode begins our attempt to put the dot-com era and the dot-com bubble in the most accurate historical context possible. To that end, please enjoy this conversation with Maggie Mahar. Maggie Mahar, thanks for coming on the Internet History Podcast. Thank you for having me. So um, just to uh, get a little background on you before we begin talking about the era. Um, so you, you wrote, uh, in your writing career, you've, you've been with uh, Money Magazine, Institutional Investor, New York Times, Bloomberg, and I guess mostly uh, in the time we're talking about, you were working at Barron's, is that correct? I was working at Barron's in the late 80s through late 90s, um, becoming increasingly um, concerned about what was obviously a bubble. Um, But no one wanted to say that. 
um, and that was a problem. And people even at Barron's were reluctant to say that because the feeling was our readers want good news. And Alan Abelson, who had been the editor-in-chief of Barron's, had been skeptical about this bull market, you know, from, I would say, the late 80s on. But some readers were quite disgruntled about that. And so most of the rest of the paper in the 90s was cheerful. And I do remember saying to our new editor at one point, you know, these mutual fund companies are selling and selling really hard. If you look at some of their ads, and the people they're selling to are individual investors who cannot afford to lose the money. People who are saving for their kids' college education, people who are saving, hoping to retire, people who know very little about the market. And my editor turned to me and he said, Maggie, the mutual fund companies are our friends. So I wasn't going to get to write a really negative story about how uh, the mutual fund companies were uh, just the charts they used in their ads were so misleading. Mm-hmm. Um, but people believed it, and they believed that trees could grow to the sky. And most investors by the late 90s, the individual investors who were in the market, had come in late. Um, they had not been, no one was investing in the stock market in the 70s. Um, the end of, I'm sorry, in the yeah, in the 70s. At the end of the 70s, Business Week had a cover, which was about the death of stocks. And it said only old fogies invest in stocks. Okay? Mm-hmm. So in the early, mid-80s, some very wealthy and professional investors came in and started buying. But individuals really had no background in the market by the early 90s, and they hadn't been investing. But they, when they saw all the money that was being made, they came in. They wanted to get in on it. And it was in the last probably five years of the 90s that you saw the individual investor really take over the market. They were really leading the market. They were doing a lot of the buying. And uh, it was a very dangerous market. And they didn't understand the stock market as a casino. Right. Well, and, and as you point out in the book, you know, in, in 1983, only 19% of households uh, even own stocks. And that rises to almost 50% by 1999. So a lot of this... Is it, is it fair to say that a lot of what happens in the late 90s is just that there's more people coming to stocks and it's a basic supply and demand thing? Well, it's more people, but more importantly, more money. The problem was throughout the 90s, even in the 80s, but certainly throughout the 90s, was too much money chasing too few stocks. And that was in part because you were beginning to see enormous consolidation of wealth among the wealthiest Americans, let's say the top 10%. You also had Greenspan keeping interest rates down, which meant it was very easy to borrow. People started using their homes as an ATM, taking money out um, and uh, investing in the stock market. So it was an excess of money chasing too few goods always drives prices up. That's what happened with real estate in the early 80s, beginning in the early 80s and after that. And that was what was happening in the stock market. Well, and let's let's take a step back because um, we're 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 going to deal mostly with the the dot com era towards the end of this. But as you point out in the book, what we think of as the dot com bubble really represents the last stage of what had really been almost a twenty year bull market starting in the early eighties, right? Exactly. The dot com stocks were just sort of I think I call them the froth and the cappuccino. Mm-hmm. Um, the S&P 500, where you're looking at big companies, brand-name companies, um, was doubling. Um, 
the S&P was racking up double-digit gains every year for four years from 95 to 98. So we're talking about big companies like Walmart, IBM, McDonald's, The Gap, up 142%. Um, these were bread-and-butter companies. These were not dot-coms, but they were going up like everything else. It was an era of momentum investing. If you saw something going up, you jumped on it and pushed it higher. And if enough people are doing that, these stocks just take off. And meanwhile, the media, uh, Wall Street analysts, all were flogging this momentum market and telling people it's all about speed. It's all about getting on this fast-moving train and holding on and don't sell, just buy and hold. I think that's an, uh, an important point to underline, though. Um, you know, in our popular memory, we think of the dot-com era of, you know, it's, it's things like Yahoo and Amazon that are doubling and tripling. But you're saying, and I, I want to underline this, that it was things like Walmart would double in a year. Procter & Gamble would be up 70% in a year. Thing, like, it, it, was, it wasn't just that the, the dot-com stocks were going crazy. Even blue-chip, normal, boring companies were going crazy in the stock market. Yeah, these were the stocks of the old economy, and they were doubling and tripling. And, I mean, we're talking about homely companies like Sunbeam, which made small appliances. But Sunbeam, just like AOL, was cooking its books. And by cooking its books and creating the appearance of skyrocketing profits, it took off. Um, and so that, you know, that was what was happening. And I think that at the end of the 90s, by 2000, when things were starting to fall apart, no one really wanted to point. They wanted to talk about this as a tech wreck, uh, a dot-com bubble bursting. No one really wanted to point out or admit that we were talking about the big blue chips of the market having going way up and then losing maybe 70% of their value in two years from 1999 to 2002. If you pointed that out, then you realize that the stock market itself is an intrinsically very risky casino. It's not just that people got carried away about dot-com stocks. It's that in a mania market, a market that's driven by emotion and momentum, all kinds of stocks can basically rip you off. So maybe maybe the, the, the dot-com stocks were almost just the most extreme form of, of the euphoria that was going on. Um, not the yeah, catalyst, but... Sorry, go ahead. They got a lot of ink, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and the analysts who were um, talking about them, specifically Mary Meeker, who was called the queen of the net by Barron's in the mid-'90s, and Henry Blodgett, poor Henry Blodgett, mm -hmm. who was first um, hailed as a hero and a genius and then scapegoated. Um, those guys got a lot of airtime on CNBC, et cetera, uh, and a lot of space in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal. Um, I remember the Wall Street Journal running a front-page story in probably mid to late 90s, and it was headlined, Real Men Buy Stocks. Stocks rather than bonds. Bonds were considered boring, but real men buy stocks. That's where the excitement is. Well, of course... The fact was, by 2000, if you looked back, you saw that if you'd begun buying bonds in 1982, and here I'm just talking about U.S. Treasury bonds, right. you would have made more money than you made if you were buying stocks from 1982. 
to 1999. Well, Uh, is that because, as they say, no one on Wall Street makes money with bonds? All the money is made in in mutual funds and stock market, or stocks, right? Well, that's what people thought, but the fact is bonds are boring. You put your money in, and you sit, and over time, the dividends compound. And meanwhile, with stocks, you buy, you sell, you buy, you sell, and you pay a lot of fees when you're buying and selling. You don't have to pay fees to buy treasuries. Um, So for a wise investor, treasuries were an obvious thing to do, particularly as this market got very frothy. Um, Because bond prices continued to go up because interest rates were so low. And as you probably know, whenever interest rates go down, the price of a bond goes up. And Alan Greenspan in particular was keeping interest rates low because that's what President Bush and the Republicans wanted him to do. And he always served the president rather than the fat of the people. Um, So with interest rates as low as they were, um, bonds just sailed ahead. I remember in 1986, I I bought my apartment, and I decided to take a variable loan where the interest rate would change every year. And I did that in 1986. I'm now just finishing paying off the mortgage. And over those years, the interest rate in the mortgage went from 12.5% to 3%. Mm-hmm. And if you looked at the history of rates, it was pretty clear that they could only go in one direction down. And if you understood what the Fed was doing, then you knew that you could pretty much count on rates staying low, going down and staying low. And that's what they did. Um, so people now I didn't have the money to buy bonds at the time, but people who did could look at those interest rates, look at the pattern and say, hey, this is a very sleepy, safe way to make money. Let me so let me ask you about two other possible um, catalysts that that create this 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 bull market and this uh, this bubble at the end of this bull market. Um, one is is that idea that that it was this weird time that no one had experienced before where there was low inflation and low employment low unemployment at the same time that had basically never those two had never gone hand in hand before right right and so people said this time it's different and those are <laughs> anyone who ever says that about history or uh stock market you just kind of cringe because it's never different it's it's always repetition with a difference so it may be hard to see that it's the same thing happening over again. But I think of, um, oh, when we went into Iraq, if you were old enough, you realize that this was going to be Vietnam all over again. Mm-hmm. Um, it was going to be, instead of jungle warfare, it was going to be door-to-door urban warfare. But we were as ill-prepared to fight that war as we were to fight Vietnam. And But, you know, people don't look back at history, and if, even if they do, they don't recognize the repetition. So well, you, sorry, go ahead. go ahead. Oh, okay. So in the stock market, what you have is, are these very long bull and bear market cycles. We had a long um, bear market, well, from the late 70s through the early 80s, and then that was followed by the long bull market that began in the early 80s and lasted until about 2000. Um, you can go back 100, 150 years, and you'll see these long cycles. And they always last longer than you'd think they would. Um, People would think, well, it can't go any higher, and it would. What's impossible to predict is, in the short term, 
when it will end. What you can predict is long-term, it will end, whether it's a bull market or a bear market. But short-term today, could I tell you whether the S&P 500 is going to be down drastically six months from now, a year from now, two years from now? No. I do know that it's pretty high right now. Some people would say it's overvalued. Other people would say it's fully valued. But it doesn't mean it can't keep climbing. So it's the timing, the short-term timing, that is all but impossible to do. Um, all you can do is stand back and realize that in a larger context, these cycles are all but inevitable. It's really human nature. It's greed and fear um, that drive these bull and bear market cycles. And uh, the market is only as rational as we are. And that's not very. So that is um, why we have these cycles. Um, and that was what was happening in the 90s. And now we're in what many people think is, is a bull market, and the question is how long is it going to last? Mm -hmm. Well, at playing devil's advocate, um, another argument that the bulls at the time would make would was twofold. One, you know, it's, it's just the end of the Cold War. You know, before 1989, you don't have the word globalization because the globe is divided into two armed camps. Right. So maybe some of it is suddenly, naturally, markets are literally opening up, and so that's more money to be made. And then the second half of their argument would be that technology is creating these new, um, new the new innovation is allowing for uh, uh, greater productivity, sort of on the par of what happened when the first industrial revolution happened and things like that. So what, what would you say about those two arguments that maybe it was just the, the Cold War ending and technology opening up new vistas in terms of, of productivity? Certainly globalization is going to make money. The question is, for whom? Many people would say that 10, 15, 20 years from now, China and other parts of Asia will be the world leaders financially, not the U.S. Um, secondly, in terms of technology making us more productive, it's not clear how, I'm trying to think of an example, um, some of these Internet companies were never producing anything. AOL is a good example. All AOL did was cook its books, and they put what they called sex chat online, and that brought in a huge amount of money. Can we call that increased productivity? Not if they really weren't making anything. Um, you have a lot of information technology companies spewing out information. Some call it an information bomb. Bits of data, day after day after day after day. Piecing it together and making some sense of it is very difficult. Um, information is not knowledge, okay? We have way too much information out there and way too little knowledge. Anyone who goes on the Internet knows that maybe 85% of what's there is garbage. 15% um, is extremely valuable. Um, but finding it and using it is something else. And... Um, that's, you know, I mean, there are companies that have come out of, well, the sort of new technology, new economy companies like Apple, Microsoft, brilliant companies. And they have actually added a great deal of value to the economy. But then you have companies like, um, oh, Priceline.com, um, Yahoo to a certain extent, um, that have not added value. Um, and then you have companies, good companies like Amazon, 
which does a very good job, first of all, selling books and then selling other things in a very convenient way. But that doesn't mean that the stock wasn't overvalued. And at one point, the stock went down 69% from 1999 to 2003. So anyone who owned Amazon and held on to it during that period lost 69% of their money. Mm -hmm. So you have to differentiate between a good company and a good stock. And Amazon was a good company, but a lousy stock. Um, AOL, I would argue, was a lousy company and a lousy stock. <laughs> and then there are companies like Apple, um, which was a good company, be- then became a bad stock. Then Steve Jobs came back in, and it became a better stock. Um, and today it's a very interesting company, dabbling with things like electric cars and solar energy. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's creating something. Someone who creates solar energy or an electric car is actually producing something. Someone who puts a lot of information, some of it good, much of it bad, on the Internet is not creating anything of real value. If we could go back also to to some of the, the foundations for this bull market, um, you know, you spoke of that there's, there's so much money coming into the market, and it's because this generation of baby boomers, you know, is needs to save for retirement. And but also at the same time, coincidentally, right when this bull market starts in the 80s, is when the 401k is invented. And so now for the first time, not only are more uh, everyday Americans entering the stock market, but they're controlling their own money, like it's in their hands as well. That's right. And that was such a disastrous idea. I remember writing at the time, the notion that anyone can be his own money manager is rather like suggesting that anyone can be his own doctor. Maybe we should all start doing surgery on on each other and on ourselves. Um, Why is investing, uh, what Warren Buffett does, for instance, requires enormous amount of time, enormous amount of knowledge, uh, depth of knowledge that goes back for decades, um, and a lot of study. I mean, you really have to study the companies, understand them from the inside out, understand the management, and you have to understand so many variables in the world, what's going on geopolitically, um, what's going on in this country, uh, what's going on with interest rates, currencies worldwide. To understand all of that takes a great deal of intelligence and a great deal of work. And most people don't have, they have another job, you know. Um, They don't have the time. Um, or necessarily the background to do that kind of work. And so inevitably, um, most of them are going to have their heads handed to them. And 401k investors have taken the terrible drubbing. Um, we know that. When, in the past, when pensions were managed by professionals, they tended to invest to a large degree in bonds because bonds are safer. And the pension fund knew that when it had to pay out the money, to retirees, the money had to be there. So they couldn't take huge risks. They had to invest fairly conservatively. And I remember one money manager from that era who was running a pension fund said, you know, that's why we we dressed up. We all wore black suits and white shirts. And that was out of respect for the money, respect for other people's money. And these money managers, those pension fund managers of the past, saw themselves as stewards uh, of your money. That's no longer the case with a great many mutual fund um, operators. And if I could, I'd say some of the, the old guys, the guys who would 
lived through the 70s and the 80s and in the 90s were still running money. They had a very different attitude about it. Um, one of them was Jean-Marie Eviard, who ran the Sojourn Funds. Mm-hmm. And he told me that by 97 or 98, people were pulling out of his funds because he was not investing in the hot stocks. He was not a momentum investor. He did not chase stocks that were going up. He looked for value. And that meant buying stocks that were cheap, relatively speaking. And at one point, Jean-Marie's partner said to him, Jean-Marie, do you realize in the last two years, we have lost half of our clients? And Jean-Marie said, told me, I said to him, I would rather lose half of my clients than half of my clients' money. Mm. By 2000, I think it was 2001, Morningstar named Jean-Marie Aviard the money manager of the year. He had lost almost no money from 1982 through 2001. Um, he didn't have the ups and downs. He didn't have the big runs that some money managers had. But at the end of the day, you didn't lose your money. You made a lot of money with him, but it might be 11, 12, 13% a year, not 29% a year or 35% a year. Um, he was just a very wise man who understood what he was doing. He understood the hysteria around him and he wasn't going to be pulled into it and he just couldn't sleep at night doing that so he didn't um but it was only i think the older money managers who understood enough about markets their volatility their cycles and their irrationality who knew enough to do what jean Rieviard did i when i was writing my book and i started it around 2001 i would call people people i didn't even know money managers and i would say you know, I'm calling you because you're old, <laughs> and you were in the market in 75, and you survived, and you're still around today investing. And I want that depth of knowledge and that perspective um, because, you know, those are the people who, in the end, uh, were more likely to understand what was going on and, uh, and get out in time. Warren Buffett got out in about 1979. Um, he said that the market is being run by fools and blackguards. And uh, he said, you know, he really, you can't trust what anyone is saying. And he told all of his investors he was giving their money back to them. These were Berkshire Hathaway investors. And they said, what? We don't want our money back. We want you to keep running it. We've been doing so well for a decade. And Buffett said, this is not a market that you want to be in. And he gave their money back. And then he went back in after the market crashed and stocks were cheap. Another another factor that I thought was important that I took from your book was there's also a cultural change in the boardroom in the sense that it's in this era in the 80s and into the 90s that the executive stock option culture starts right and that I the impression that I get is that that I mean obviously a CEO has always been paid for his company to do well and his stock to do well but the the odd dynamics of the stock option means that it's important for the stock to do well in a short period of time exactly. or in a specific period of time. Go, uh, exactly. go, ahead, go ahead and speak on that. And people started managing their companies for the short term because their own wealth was tied up in the price of the stock. And what happened to the company 10 years, 15 years down the road was not their concern. As one guy said to me, I'll be out by then. So, and you also saw CEOs were no longer staying in a company for 20, 25 years. Instead, they were in and out in three or four years. These were cowboys, and uh, they were in it for the short term and the short run. 
And that was not good for corporate management, obviously. That meant the corporation started doing things that would blow up in 10 years, but the investors might still be there, but the CEO would not be. He would have moved on to another company. Mm -hmm. Well, and to, to start to talk about specific personalities, like, you know, you know, Greenspan being the biggest in terms of being a catalyst for right. uh, creating a bull market or essentially Greenspan, his attitude is that the most important thing for him to focus on is Wall Street and Main Street is a secondary concern. Well, the most important thing for him to focus on is what the president wants. Mm -hmm. And Greenspan was brought in uh, to replace the previous uh, Fed chairman, uh, Volcker, who had Volker, been very yeah. good. And Greenspan was brought in by the Republicans specifically because he was a conservative, probably one would say Republican, certainly not a Democrat. And he was given his marching orders, and he followed them. Um, the interesting thing about Greenspan that only people, I guess, who know a great deal about finance realize is that he was not a terribly bright man. You know, he created the impression of being an intellectual by using big words, kind of like, you know, um, a wise aleck 12-year-old who impresses the adults by, by his large vocabulary, but he really didn't know much more than that 12-year-old. Um, and that is really a tragedy. I'm not blaming him for that. I'm just saying that the press people in Congress built him up as if he was a genius. He was not. Right. He was absolutely lionized as like some sort of like an all-seeing God at some point in the late Exactly. 90s. And it was because of the way he looked, you know, the glasses and the way he talked. Those big words, those $100 words, that is what um, persuaded people. Now, I think Janet Yellen, our current Fed Reserve chairman, is brilliant. Brilliant. But she's relatively plain smoke spoken. She's a woman. Um, no one is building her up in that way. I've seen, you know, on Bloomberg, for instance, um, a headline that was addressed to her that said, Janet, it's time to raise rates. Now, no one would call Alan Allen like that, not in print, but she was, she's Janet. Uh, but she's, I think, been doing a very good job in a very, very difficult situation. Um, you know, it's not quite clear what they can do, but, uh, you know, keeping rates as low as they are, there's problems with that, but trying to raise them, there's problems with that as well. Anyway, Greenspan was seen as a guru, and that was not good for anyone. Um, and I would say he was probably no more intelligent than Mary Meeker or Henry Blodgett. Um, but the difference was Blodgett knew he was in over his head. He had been on Wall Street for two or three years when he became the Internet guru, and he realized that he, oh, as he said to me, he said, I mean, people started calling me and wanting me to become their Internet analyst, and I didn't know anything about the Internet, but neither did anyone else. And the headhunters called me because I had some background in journalism, though ironically, he was not a success as a freelance journalist. Um, perfectly intelligent young man, but he didn't know where these Internet stocks were going to go, nor did anyone else. And he knew he was picking numbers out of the air when he said Amazon will double. It will go to 80. Um, he had no idea. And he will admit that. Um, but as you pointed out to me, in any market mania, in any um, market driven by excess, whenever there's a new, new thing, then someone will be anointed as a genius. 
some perfectly ordinary fellow will be lauded as a genius. And he pointed to himself and he said, that was me. Um, so, and of course, then later he was going to be blamed when the market started to fall apart. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Well, and let's talk about uh, those personalities of the era. Um, you know, the, the Jack Grumman's, uh, Abby Cohen, Mary Meeker, Henry Blodgett among them. They're all analysts. And so what we think a stock analyst does is analyze and tell us, you know, what to buy and what not to buy. But in this era, what they're actually doing, their role at their companies is more of a cheerleader for stocks that that their company is involved with, correct? Here I would really differentiate. Um, Mary Meeker was by far the jazziest, okay? Mm -hmm. Um, The sexiest and the jazziest. Um, By contrast, Abby Cohen was always described as a woman who wore sensible shoes, which she did. She continued, all during this era, she continued to live in Queens, down the street from where her father lived. Um, She had children, a family, and she also took care of him. Um, Cohen's one blind spot, I think, had to do with her patriotism. She believed sincerely that the U.S. was the best country in the world and the best economy in the world, and therefore she always backed U.S. stocks and tended to downplay stocks from other countries. Other than that, though, um, she was never really caught up in the mania. Um, if you bought stuff that she was recommending, say she was at Barron's Roundtable at a certain point, uh, still is, and if you bought what she was recommending, the chances you were going to lose a lot of money were slim. The chances that you might make a decent amount of money were pretty good, and that continues to be true to this day. She just does not recommend risky stocks. She recommends stocks that you may never have heard of or just very plain uh, stocks like uh, Carter's, the, the children's clothing company. Um, so she's really much more of a value investor, and her firm was doing some pretty good research. Now, some people her firm got carried away with the whole mania in the 90s. I would say she didn't really. Um, Henry Blanchett was in over his head. He was a greenhorn. Um, and his basically the salespeople at um, Merrill Lynch, where he was, would call him up and they'd say, look, you said the stock would go to 40. It's gone to 40. Now, where's it going to go next? Tell us. Give us another number. We can't just keep talking about how it went to 40. So he was constantly being pushed by the sales team to come up with higher and higher estimates, which he did um, to his regret. Um, so I'd say that, you know, different, you know, different analysts were different. Um, and some of them, and Henry Blanchard himself by 99, was telling the New York Times, the prices on these Internet stocks are terrifying. 
And you know what? The Times just ignored them. They said, okay, fine, but what would you buy today? So um, people did not want to hear skepticism, um, and that was, that was a problem. So I would blame the media as much as I would blame the analysts. Well, actually, that's a, that's a perfect segment because I wanted to ask how much of also what happens in this era, era is a result of the CNBCization of it in the sense that, oh, yeah. you know, when I was a kid in the 80s, you know, what happened on the stock market was boring. They mentioned it for 10 seconds in the newscast and that was it. But then by the 90s, the late 90s especially, you know, CNBC suddenly is on in every cafe, everywhere you go. It, everyone's talking about it. And I, I didn't know that Roger Ailes um, of Fox News fame was uh, responsible for turning CNBC into the powerhouse that it was in the 90s. Yep. Can talk about that a little? Yeah, it was all about speed. In the book, I say the media laid down the rhythm for this momentum market. On CNBC, the guys talked fast, everything moved fast. They were talking about where is the stock today, where is the stock this afternoon. It was all about now, immediacy and speed. Um, and it was the stock market had become a game by that time. I watched CNBC quite religiously while I was writing the book because it gave me such a good feel for what was happening out there in the world. What, what I was hearing on CNBC was what people were hearing, individual investors who got in late in the 90s and were still holding on in 2002, 2003. They had been taught to buy and hold. You can't lose money in the U.S. stock market, they were told, if you just buy and hold. Not true, of course. All through the 70s, people lost money painfully year after year after year. Um, but CNBC was a, you know, a, a, they just were pulling people into the tent. Um, and, uh, you know, and the guys were fast talking, wisecracking, sometimes very funny. Um, some of the people on there were quite intelligent. Um, but it was, a, it was showbiz, that's what it was. And that's all that Roger Ailes was about, was show business. He had no more interest in news or real news or getting at the truth than flying. So at some point in the mid-90s, CNBC changes from being something that, you know, someone on Wall Street would watch to stay atop of the news into something that marketed Wall Street's preferred narrative to, to normal Americans, essentially. That's right. I mean, Housewives watched. I had a friend who watched it um, constantly. She also watched Jim Cramer. Um, and she was investing her own money and her husband's money and lost a lot of money, ultimately, um, but she would just all day long just be transfixed by the stock market, and she became a day trader. Um, and, you know, she wasn't, I mean, at that point, maybe she was 60 years old. Um, she wasn't well-suited to being a day trader. She didn't know that much about the stock market or stocks, but it was exhilarating. You know, it was an exhilarating hobby, and she was successful for quite a while. And so, you know, um, success breeds excess. And that, that's what happened um, to so many people, perfectly nice, honest people. Um, and those are the ones I really felt sorry for because it, you know, it was just naivete and, and no one was warning them. One final point that I, I took away from the book um, that I had forgotten, um, you know, again, in our popular memory, we think of the dot-com era as, as just, man, it was everything to the moon. It, you know, within five years, the, the Dow goes from 5,000 to 10,000. But, right. but in fact, it was a, quite a roller coaster ride. I mean, in, in the summer of 97 with the Asian crisis, 
you know, the, the market is down 10 to 20% in a week at times. And then in summer of 98, um, you had the, the, the Russian ruble crisis and the long-term capital management. And so again, all throughout this, what we think of as the boom period, there were, you know, there were, uh, bear markets within this insane bull market. That's right. That's right. And what you had to know was when to get out. Um, and ideally, you don't get out when the roller coaster is going down. <laughs> you get uh, out when it's still going up and you feel you've made enough money. There's a saying on Wall Street, um, pigs get fed, hogs get slaughtered. Mm-hmm. Uh, and people I knew on Wall Street, people who were managing money, people who were stockbrokers, um, people who were analysts, they were getting out, I would say, 97, 98. I mean, they would tell me. I would say, what are you doing with your kids' money? Oh, well, it's not in the market. It's, you know, it's, in, it's in bonds or it's in a money market account. Or more and more in the late 90s, people on Wall Street were starting to buy real estate, particularly out in the Hamptons, um, second homes. And um, they felt burying their money out in the Hamptons was much, much safer than putting it in the stock market. But at the same time, they were selling, um, you know, Cisco to little old ladies. So it's... And they felt they had no choice. I mean, they said, this is what people want. They want me to recommend a hot stock. They don't want to hear about bonds or anything else. And so that's what most people did. Now, some people like Jean-Marie Aviar refused to do that. They said, I'm not going to lose my customers' money, even mm-hmm. if that means I lose my customers. Right, because in, in your book, you, you describe so vividly, I mean, there were a lot of people that were saying at, at the time, this is a bubble, it's a bubble, it's a bubble, but they they when they stick their necks out, they get chopped off because then the market goes up again another 30%. In, in a, in... Exactly, exactly. Um, and that's the way many journalists felt that at a certain point, you can't keep telling people it's going to go down. You can't keep telling them it's a bubble. They won't believe you. Now, there were some journalists um, who, uh, I think of Alan Sloan in Newsweek, who was particularly good at continuing to try to explain to people what a disaster AOL was and how the AOL Time Warner merger was a crime. Um, and he, he didn't lose his job, but certainly a lot of people uh, didn't believe him. Um, and uh, Alan Abelson at Barron's, the same thing. There were people like that out there, but uh, not a great many. Well, if, if you'll bear with me for a second, um, because I, I read your book to try to get a context of, of the era. Um, if you'll bear with me, here's my thesis, and, and then tell me if, if, I'm, if I'm on the right track here, if I've got it, or, or, or if you disagree. So essentially, as opposed to our, our popular memory of it, the the dot com era was not a bubble that was solely created by internet companies being crazily overvalued or anything like that. Um, it was really the tail end of a long bull market that was sort of all these inf- all these forces come together at the same time. You have the baby boomers needing to invest for retirement all coming to the market at the same time. You have Americans in charge of their money through four hundred one ks at the same time. You have Wall Street wanting to market to them and put them in stocks and keep them buying stocks and holding stocks, even if the market goes down all at the same time. So that in essence, then you have the, the, the personality factors, you have Greenspan in charge of the Fed always being uh, creating a, a, an environment that's amenable to Wall Street. And so 
in reality, when the dot com stocks come along, they're just another piece of kindling that's added to this fire that that causes this mania and this bubble. Exactly. I mean, they were you know they were kind of the leading point, but they weren't even by and large. Well, eventually they were the biggest stocks, but originally they were not. But this was, as I said, the froth on the cappuccino. This is what got people very excited. They felt they understood this. But this time, so many people were using the Internet. Um, they were buying their books on Amazon. They were getting their news from Yahoo. They're buying so they their stocks. They under- They're trading their stocks on the Internet as well. Yeah, exactly. And they felt they understood these companies just like they understood Procter & Gamble, um, except they didn't. No one really did. I mean, the interesting thing about the Internet is that I think it was, say, 95, and it was really taking off. It was a pipeline looking for content. No one really knew exactly what was going to work. Um, you know, could you sell books online? Well, it turned out you could. Um, then eventually they figured out you could sell other things online. Um, could you put news online? How would you make money if you put news online? Uh, could you make money through advertising online? They're still trying to figure that out. Um, so it was, you know, it was kind of a hollow pipeline, but with seemingly great potential and certainly you know, I use the Internet all the time for my research, et cetera. I think Google is great. Um, but it was an unknown. And yet people felt that they knew it well, that it was familiar, that it was in their home. And that was a problem because they weren't differentiating between the price of the stock and the company. I, I remember Nokia, uh, a very good company, very smart company. But at a certain point, I think it was trading at 175 times earnings. Mm -hmm. And I said to my husband, nothing is worth 175 times earnings. Sell it. And he did. And, um, of course, it it went way down. But it it didn't have anything to do with the integrity of the company or what they were doing. They were bright people. It was a good company. But investors had gotten carried away. And and Nokia is still around today and still a good company. But... um, you know, that, that the difference between the price and the company is something that was people were missing. Uh, finally, um, I know my thoughts on this, but, you know, the, the question that gets asked, at least in tech circles all the time, is are we in another bubble like in the late 90s? And um, I'm curious what you would tell someone who said that to you. Are we in, an, are we in another bubble when it comes to tech? Or is it is it similar to what happened in the nineties? What would you tell them? Uh, varies by company, um, and also by time. I mean, is, is Apple overpriced today? Was it overpriced two years ago? Will it be overpriced th- three years from now? I can't answer all of those questions. But what I would say is, it's a solid company. And if I saw it going down and staying kind of down over a period of a year or more. Um, I would be inclined to buy it. Only if no one else wanted to buy it, though. (laughs) (laughs) You you don't, I mean, that's what Warren Buffett always says, is you want to buy whatever no one else wants to buy. That's why buying stocks in 81, 82 was a brilliant move, because people were saying stocks are for old fogies. Um, You know, Apple Apple happens to be a company I particularly admire, especially because they're doing so many forward-looking things now. But will they lose money? on solar or electric cars, quite possibly. Um, those are, you know, new ventures, and some people are going to lose a lot of money probably while trying to develop them, and some people will make a lot of money. Um, 
So prediction in the stock market is kind of a fool's game. But you can look for value, and you can look for intelligent people doing intelligent things, and you can say, well, I'd like to put 2% of my money into somebody who's pursuing solar because I think over the long term, solar is going to make a lot of money for a lot of people. But when and which people? Very hard to say. Well, uh, Maggie Mahar, the the book Bull, I recommend to any listener – if you want to wrap your head around not just that era, but you know the the psychology of of bull markets and 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 bubbles and and all that kind of stuff, it's an, it's an excellent excellent book for that sort of thing. Maggie, tell me uh, what you're involved with today. Okay, well, after I wrote Bull, I wrote another book called Money Driven Medicine: The Real Reason Healthcare Costs So Much. And the thesis of that book, and it was something that a lot of the barons I wrote a lot about healthcare, health insurance companies, pharma, device makers, etc. And what I learned is that it was a money-driven business. Um, the U.S. is the only developed country in the world that has chosen to make healthcare a for-profit enterprise. That leads to a lot of conflict of interest. Um, should I be developing drugs that will sell? and make money for my investors, or should I be developing drugs that we need but may take years to develop, let's say, researching Alzheimer's? Well, drug makers have by and large decided to put their money on drugs that they can develop quickly and sell to a lot of people. Um, and when I began investing, investigating um, health care in the U.S., I began to see a lot of conflict of interest everywhere, whether you're talking about hospitals or many doctors or drug makers or device makers, um, people were putting profits ahead of people. And that is why our healthcare market is so expensive because two things. First of all, we overpay for almost everything. We pay far more than people in other countries do for drugs. We pay far more for hospital care. Um, we build hospitals that look like resorts, and that costs a fortune, all the marble, all the spas, et cetera. Um, and secondly, not only do we pay too much, but we over-treat. Um, before the Affordable Care Act, a great many Americans got way too little me- medical care, and others that had good insurance got way too much medical care. We do many more surgeries, many more unnecessary surgeries. Americans are over-medicated, particularly older people taking four or five different medications. Um, We don't go to the hospital more often than other people in other countries, but when you get there, as one doctor said to me, a lot more happens to you. Tests, surgeries. I remember um, somebody writing to me about his aunt, or maybe great aunt, who um, was suffering from congestive congestive heart failure. She was quite old. She was in the hospital, and while she was there, some bright young doctor decided to do a breast biopsy. Well, guess what? He decided she had breast cancer and needed to have a mastectomy. She, of course, died on the operating table. Her heart couldn't take it. There was no reason to do this. This woman was not going to live long enough for the cancer to ever bother her. But it was doctors saying, well, don't just stand there. Do something. And so everyone is doing something all the time. That leads to a lot of overtreatment. But, of course, if you're a hospital, the only way you can make money is by doing more tests, doing more surgery, et cetera. So increasingly we've been paying for volume rather than value, and it's something that the Affordable Care Act is trying to do is to correct that. 
um, and begin paying for value, not volume, uh, paying doctors and hospitals not to do more, but to do it better with better outcomes. So in about 2007, I started a blog called healthbeatblog.com, which was really beginning to look at healthcare reform. And I could see that it was beginning to be possible. And so I followed that whole story um, from the time Obama came to office until we passed the law and today as we're implementing it. And um, it's been a great story. It's been a, a really ultimately positive story, I think. But um, lots of ups and downs, and we've just made a start on reforming health care. I would say it's going to take at least 10 years to get somewhere because what we're looking at is cultural change. Not just doctors and hospitals and drug makers, but patients need to begin to think differently about health care. They need to begin to realize that there are risks as well as benefits, um, and that you tend to read only happy stories in the media. Uh, about this miracle drug and the person who was saved. And what you don't read is about the other 95 people who were hurt by that drug. Um, so healthcare is, is a risky business. It's a tough business. And patients need to realize that eventually we all die. Um, you can't be cured of everything. And uh, sometimes I think our expectations are too high and we expect miracles, and if we don't get miracles, we find another doctor who will promise us a miracle. And uh, that leads to not just a waste of money, that's not my big concern, but a great deal of human suffering. People who go through so much toward the end of their lives, um, that's really futile treatment. And uh, we're beginning to get smarter about that, looking more to palliative care and hospice care, and um, keeping people out of pain, um, rather than trying to uh, cure it now. But uh, it, it's, you know, it's going to be a large cultural change, and I think that is the, one of the best things that this country is doing right now is beginning to reevaluate health care and also recognizing, of course, that everyone should have high-quality care, not based on how much money they have, but on the fact that they're a human being. Well, and, and we can follow you still following this story at, at healthbeatblog.com, that's right? That's right. And I'll, these days I often tweet rather than writing a post. But my posts are pretty long. So on, on healthbeatblog.com you'll find an archive of posts you can search that goes back to 2007. And I've written about practically everything, um, insurers, hospitals, doctors, uh, reform, what was going on in Congress, all of that. Um, but these days, I'm also tweeting a lot. So if you go on Twitter and follow me on Twitter, um, you will see that I'm often commenting on healthcare stories as well as economic stories but, and things that you know go back to bull. And your your Twitter tw- Twitter handle is um, Maggie Mahar. Okay, <laughs> not very original, but that's it. Uh, well, Maggie Mahar, um, thank you for coming on the show and um, helping our audience, but also, more importantly, helping me um, uh, wrap my mind around uh, the dot-com era and, and all that great stuff. I think your podcast, by the way, is terrific. I mean, it's, you know, it's, what you're doing online is, is you're creating an archive. Um, it's, it's like a library, and it's always going to be there. And uh, for people who do searches and find your stuff, it's great. Well, thank you very much. We're we're, we're trying. If this is the first time you're listening to this podcast, please subscribe to us on your podcast app of choice. There's plenty more great internet history where that came from. And if you're a longtime listener, then you know what to do to help us out. Rate and review us on iTunes. 
because iTunes gives credit to reviews and ratings, and the more great reviews we get, the more people will discover us. As always, there's more info on our website, www.internethistorypodcast.com. The show's Twitter handle is at NetHistoryPod, and my personal Twitter is at BrianMCC. Thanks for listening.